Amen. The word of the Lord commands us to speak the word with authority so that no one disregards the eternal truth of Scripture and so that no one rejects the eternal good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the great aim of the gathering of God's people today is that we will sit under the authority of his word. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, we are in chapter 1 as we work through this epistle, and today we will be looking at verses 17 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21, and I've titled this message, The Glory of Redemption. For that is what we see in this text is the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you followed along with our journey through this epistle, you know that Peter's writing style can be difficult at times to follow. It can be especially difficult to outline, and this is one of those cases. His flow of thought is not necessarily linear, as you may see in some of the other passages of Scripture, but the primary point of this text is crystal clear. And it's that we see the glory of redemption. So we want to consider our eternal salvation, that we are redeemed from the Father's judgment by the redeeming work of the Son, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is what we see jumping off the pages of this passage. So with that, we want to come to our text and read it and then ask the Lord's blessing on our time. I'll ask that you now stand with me, if you are able, as we want to show honor and reverence to the Lord's Word as we read it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17, this is the holy, inspired Word of God. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord now in prayer. Father, we come to your throne of grace now, acknowledging that you are holy, holy, holy. For nothing can compare to the glory of our great God in heaven. You've created all things, the sun, the moon, the stars, every universe, every molecule, The whole earth is telling of your glory and your power and your wisdom. 
But Lord, we must also acknowledge that your glory and your power and your wisdom are revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Lord, your word is powerful, it is active, it is living, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray and we ask that it would cut our hearts. Lord, that we would be laid bare before you and that you would root out any and all sin in the deepest and darkest corners of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here today who do, know, do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray, O oh God, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would open blind eyes that you would bring to life dead hearts, that you would breathe the life of the Holy Spirit into those who do not know Christ, granting them faith and repentance and eternal life with you. Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, how greatly we need your help. We are desperately dependent on your Holy Spirit to move among us as we study the truth of your word. Lord, for all the power and the wisdom of men will fail utterly when it comes to the transmission and the understanding and the application of the truth of your word. We can put all of our effort, all of our energy, all of our dedication and all of our devotion into learning and knowing and understanding your word but if we do that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, all of that striving is in vain. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us humble and eager and ready hearts, Lord, to be ready to receive and apply the truth of your word. Lord, our Savior prayed that you would sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. And we echo that prayer of our Lord and Savior. Would you please, God, sanctify us in the truth? Would you show us a deeper view of Christ, our Savior? Would you help us to better understand the holiness of your judgment. May we understand that though this life is temporary, the life to come is eternal. And we will either be found in Christ, where we are forgiven and granted life forevermore in heaven, or we will be found in our sins, condemned to suffer for all eternity in hell. Lord, it is eternity that is at stake in how we respond to the gospel of Christ. May we be found faithful. Would you grant us repentance? Would you conform us to the image of your Son? Would you form Christ in us? Lord, again, we are completely dependent on your spirit. We are thankful for the work of Christ. And we pray all these things, indeed, in Jesus' name. Amen.
So as we consider Peter's epistle, we understand that his ultimate point, his ultimate goal is to take his reader's view from what is temporal and what is present and what is fleeting and passing and to give them an eternal view, to set their gaze on eternity, to move their gaze from the present life to eternal life, to move their gaze from present hardship to eternal glory, to fix their eyes, to move their view from the present temptations of life to see and understand and strive after the eternal, holy righteousness of God. That is the thrust of this entire epistle, and as that is Peter's goal, what he does in the text before us today is show us the good news of Christ. He shows us the precious value of the blood of Christ poured out on the cross, given for many for the forgiveness of sins. Peter's exhortation here is to to move the readers and to move saints from a certain way of life to obedience and to reverence, to a reverent fear of the holy God who has called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Ultimately, we could set this forth as our kind of primary focus, the primary exhortation of this text, and that is with faith and hope in the precious and redeeming blood of Christ, we must conduct our lives in reverential fear of the Lord. With faith and hope in the precious blood and the completed work of Christ, we then are to respond by conducting our lives in reverential fear of God. One of the great foundations, one of the great roots and causes and drivers of obedience of the Christian is to consider the cost of our redemption. The cost of our redemption being the blood of Christ poured out at the cross, Christ paying for each and every sin of each and every one of the elect saints of God. All of your sins before salvation and all of your sins after salvation were laid upon Christ at the cross. If you are redeemed or if you will one day be redeemed, every sin of your life was paid for by Christ. And the preciousness of that blood poured out on the cross should drive you to devoted obedience It should also drive you to reverential fear of the God who poured out that wrath on his one and only begotten and beloved Son. So as we look to this text again, it's one of those where it's hard to move in a straight line from verse 17 in a straight line to verse 21. So we're going to kind of move around a little bit in this to, to see the Father's impartial justice Then we want to see the Son's redeeming work. And then we'll come back to the end of verse 17 and see the believer's devoted response. So we begin with the Father's impartial justice, beginning in verse 17. Peter writes, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. We can stop right there. Peter begins with this idea of showing God's justice and showing that God is the standard creator 
and he is the standard enforcer, if you will. The Lord will judge each one, as the text says, according to your work. And we'll break that apart in a few minutes to make sure that we don't get out of balance in our understanding of what our works play into our salvation. But the first thing we must pick up is to understand this idea that while God is, yes, indeed, the judge, he is also the one who creates the law by which he judges. As Americans, we understand this um, legal system where there's a separation of powers, right? You have one branch of government that writes the laws, one that enforces the laws, and one that judges whether or not those laws are indeed constitutional. And that's a good design for a legal system that is designed by sinful men and implemented by sinful men. But such is not so in the economy of God. Because God is holy and just and all-knowing and all-wise, and so he therefore creates the standard by which he judges. All justice is wrapped up in the person of God. Only God has the authority to define and to enact justice. No ideas of men can change or alter justice. If we add adjectives to justice, we are being unbiblical because there's one type of justice, biblical justice, justice that is enacted under the authority of God. And the Lord shows us that justice through his word. So the immediate context then of this letter is helpful because we must understand what is that standard. If the Lord creates the standard whereby he judges all people, what is that standard? What must we attain to be pleasing to God? Consider the text we studied last week, verses 15 and 16 of this very chapter. Peter writes, But like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What is the standard that God judges by? It is the standard of his holy and perfect righteousness. His holy and perfect righteousness. The justice of God in redemption begins at this very point, that God is holy. That God, as Scripture says, is holy, holy, holy. All of God's person is wrapped up in this empowering thing called holiness. His righteousness is holy. His mercy is holy. His wrath is holy. His patience is holy. God is holy, and that holiness is how he judges us, every person. What then is the manner of his judgment? And we we understand that that is his standard of judgment, but what is the way in which God judges? Look at the text. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, God is an impartial judge. It means that God is no respecter of persons in his judgment. He judges based only upon the standard that he creates. Your social status does not affect that. The color of your skin does not affect that. 
Your gender does not affect that. Your nationality does not affect that. God judges impartially without basing it on any external factors such as those things that we've mentioned. Rather than judging based on externals, how does the Lord judge? Scripture tells us, 1 Samuel 16, or 2 Samuel 16, verse 7, says he does not look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. The Apostle Paul would have something to say about this in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Literally, that could be rendered, we know that the judgment of God according to truth falls upon those who practice disobedience and unrighteousness. God judges perfectly according to his standard of truth. There's no measure of men that can be applied to the standard of God's judgment. God is the only judge. The Lord judges based on facts rather than based on feelings or emotions or any other such thing. The Lord judges on truth. John Calvin said about this, The meaning is that we by no means discharge our duty towards God when we obey him only in appearance. He continued, The Lord is not a mortal man whom the outward appearance pleases, but he reads what we are inwardly in our hearts. He not only prescribes laws for our feet and hands, but he also requires what is just and right as to the mind and the spirit. The Lord requires clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24, who may ascend into the holy hill of the Lord, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That is the means of God's judgment. So that's the application here. When we think about God as an impartial judge, we have to understand that it's not just what we do externally that grants us or wins us or earns us favor with God because God will look impartially at the heart. We go as far as to say that true godliness begins in the heart. The heart is the root of true godliness. If you desire sin, even doing the right thing is still sinful. Your heart must be changed. You say, how do I do that? What do I do to change my heart? I have all these sinful desires, but I am new in Christ. What do I do? You lay those at the foot of the cross. You beg the Lord to remove those temptations. You get on your knees in prayer. You go before the Lord. You open up his book, the Holy Scriptures, and you read and you read and you read and you pray and you pray and you pray and you ask and you ask and you ask that the Lord would remove those sinful desires. And if you are in Christ, he will answer that prayer because he judges impartially he judges according to the heart, and if he judges according to the heart, he must then empower us to be transformed. And that comes through the Holy Spirit and through the working of his holy word.
So it's not the external that matters. It's the heart. The Lord judges impartially by looking at the heart. But the text goes on. There's this kind of guardrail or this balance that we see as Peter continues. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges, how? According to each one's work. The Lord is no respecter of persons. He does not show preference or favor to anyone. But he judges according to your work. He judges according to your work. That's the biblical safeguard here as we think about God judging the heart. This is the safeguard to this unbiblical notion that is so prevalent in our day where somebody will say, well, I'm just a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace and I'm just going to sin. That's so common. That's so prevalent in modern day evangelicalism and it's un biblical because the Lord judges each one impartially according to your works. That means that if you claim the name of Christ yet live like a rebel to the truth of God's word, you are revealing that you are not in Christ. We can say that on the authority of Holy Scripture. We understand we're not saved by good deeds. If you are not in Christ, all the good works that you could ever do are but filthy, dirty, nasty rags before God. They are polluted by sin. They are stained by sin, and they cannot please God. But the Lord is pleased by the obedience of His people. We are to give of our lives as a pleasing sacrifice, an acceptable service of worship to Him. The Lord is pleased by the good works of His people, and He will judge you according to His standard. If you claim the name of Christ, yet live as one dead in sin, you prove to be one who is dead in sin. So this justice of God could really be very bad news. We consider that God judges impartially based on our works and our deeds. And anyone in this room who is being honest would say, if the Lord is judging me solely based on my works, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, and I'm doomed for hell. And that is true. The Lord judges you based only upon the good that you are able to do. You will spend all eternity in hell. So secondly, then, let's consider the other side of that. Let's consider God's justice as good news, and that is because God's justice was poured out upon His Son, Jesus Christ, in your place and in my place. So let's consider the Son's redeeming work in verses 18 through 20. Peter writes that there, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So again, we're not taking a completely linear path because we have to come back and look at the end of verse 17 in a few moments. 
But to stick with this idea of God's redemption, we're going to look at the Son's work in redemption here. And even there, we're going to flip the verses around. We're going to start at verse 20 where we see that Christ was foreknown by the Father to be the Savior and Redeemer. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The work of Christ was not a reactive response to sin. When God created the universe, he knew that sin would come into the world, and he knew exactly what the plan that was agreed upon in eternity past with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, he knew that exact plan before he ever founded the world. This is not an afterthought. Jesus was foreknown. He was in perfect harmony and unity with the Father in eternity past. But even beyond that harmony and unity of the Trinity, Christ was foreknown in eternity past as the Messiah, as the Savior. Paul describes this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He said, God saved us according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We are saved by the grace that is granted to us in Christ from eternity past that is effective, as we will see in a moment, to eternity future. We can take this all the way back to the garden, the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. You consider when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord had an immediate response. It was not as though the Lord was wringing his hands trying to determine how to redeem a fallen humanity. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord said to Satan, to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, speaking of the woman's seed, speaking of Christ, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Even at that point, immediately following the first sin, the Lord knew that Christ would crush the head of the serpent. It was foreknown from the foundation of time. It was God's eternal plan. But that was an eternal plan that was brought to fruition in space and time. Peter says that Christ has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, for the sake of you who would believe. Hebrews 1 tells us that in these last days, the Lord has spoken to us in and through and by his Son. Before Christ came, he spoke by the prophets. But once Christ came, all things came to their fulfillment in the plan of redemption in this space and time, and the Lord has spoken to us by his Son. This plan was once a mystery. The prophets prophesied. They were, they were foretelling. They were telling of the future of the coming Messiah. It was a mystery, not fully understood, but it's a mystery that is revealed fully in Christ. God executed what he had decreed, what was once not fully understood. He brought to full, clear understanding in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the wonders in living in the time that we do. You consider these Old Testament saints. They lived, they looked forward 
to the coming of Christ. They did not know the fullness of what would happen and how the Lord would bring about his plan of salvation. They knew there would be a Messiah. They knew that he would save his people from their sins, but they didn't know the fullness. But dear friends, we do. We know the fullness of God's entire written revelation. Scripture contains everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. All that you need to walk in a holy way with your God is revealed in Scripture and applied by the Holy Spirit. So Christ was foreknown before the foundation. He appeared in these last days for the sake of you. And now we as the saints of God go forth and live in a way that pleases God because we have the whole summation of God's truth. We have all that we need to walk with our God. We are, friends, hear this, we are without excuse. We're without excuse when it comes to having a dull heart or a dull mind. You have the revealed truth of the glory and the work of Christ. So that leads us back to verses 18 and 19 where we see this contrast of the the preciousness of the blood of Christ versus these imperishable things like silver and gold. Peter says, You know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the, your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So consider here the contrast of the, the passing nature of these things. Peter describes this idea of silver and gold, things that are imperishable, or things that are perishable, things that could fade away, that could be destroyed, that will not ultimately last. However, the blood of Christ is precious. It is eternal. It will never lose its power The blood of Christ is powerful to save everyone whom the Lord chooses to save. The work accomplished by the shedding of the blood of Christ at the cross was effective, and it is eternal. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 say that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. But Christ entered through his own blood. He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You are not saved by that which is fading away, that which moth and rust can destroy. You are saved by the eternal, the eternally effective blood of Christ. There's another contrast when we consider what what Peter says here, how he describes the blood of Christ, and that is to consider the value of these things, the nature of of these things. You're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood. But with precious blood. Silver and gold are metals with 
impurities. We talked about this a few weeks ago at the beginning of this epistle. They are things that go through a refining process. They're heated up and they're melted and the impurities will rise to the top or sink to the bottom and they will be separated to make these things of more worth, of more value, more pure. But Peter makes very clear, and this is such an interesting picture, it's such a humbling picture, that you are not redeemed by something that can ever be made more valuable. You are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. His blood was of ultimate value. His blood was of purest form when it was poured out upon the cross. When you consider this ultimate value and pure blood that was poured out, friend, does that not humble you? Does that not cause you to hate your sin? When you consider the price of your redemption, do you not stop and think, oh my goodness, praise the Lord, I wish I would never sin again because this ultimate cost was paid. This ultimate price was was given to ransom and redeem me from my sin. The sacrifice was foreshadowed in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, there when the Lord brought the Passover, when he was about to remove and lead the the Israelites out of Egypt. And speaking of the Passover feast, Exodus 12 verse 5, the Lord described the lamb that should be sacrificed that night. He said, your lamb shall be an unblemished male of a year old. That was a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. As we see in John chapter 1, friends, let us behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's illustrate this real quick to, to help us think through a little bit of application, and then we'll look at our response. We'll, we'll kind of do application for the rest of our time this morning, but just an illustration when you think about, about cost and value and the preciousness of the blood of Christ. If you had a friend call you up and say, I've got a $100 gift card to Connors. I would love to take you out for a steak dinner. You would go with them, and you would be very thankful that they took you out for a steak dinner. There's a monetary value. It's a $100 gift card, and they're going to buy you a good steak for that $100. What if they said, hey, I've got $1,000. I would love to send you and your spouse away for your anniversary. We'll keep the kids. Y'all go and have fun, and we'll see you in a few days. You would certainly be thankful. You would want to return. Um, you would want to repay that in such a way you would... You'd want to show your gratitude and how you responded to that person. When a friend shows up with a brand new car, they've dropped some serious cash at this point, uh, $30,000, let's say, and they give you this car, they just say, I just wanted to give this to you. You're going to be overwhelmingly grateful. And next week when that friend has car trouble, you're going to be the first person to step up and say, hey, let me take you to and from work. All those things, though, have monetary value. You can place a value on those things, but consider this, the blood of Christ is not like those things because you cannot place a value on the precious blood of Christ. It is invaluable. 
We cannot comprehend the cost that was paid for our sins. And therefore, our response of devotion and obedience and the sacrifice that we should willingly and joyfully and thankfully give should match the cost that was paid. Now, we can never match that cost, but we sure should strive after such. There's no limit to the worth and the value of the blood of Christ, but he poured it out at the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins. So now let's come back to verse 17 and look finally at the believer's devoted response. We've seen the Father's impartial justice, the Son's redeeming work, and now, after looking at those two items, let's consider the believer's response. Particularly, we'll look at the second half of verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. I want to look at the first part of verse 17 just for a moment because we kind of skimmed over something that, that can be an application from this. Peter said there, if you address as father the one who impartially judges. If you address as father, if you call upon as father, if you cry out to the impartial judge as your father, this is how you are to conduct yourselves. One response of the believer to our redemption is to come to God as our heavenly father, to depend on him as a child depends on his father for safety and security and provision. We, are, we have a duty to come to the Lord as our father. We're joined to and united to God through Christ as a son is joined to and united with his father through birth. So now let's turn our attention to the, to the main idea here. Conduct yourselves in fear. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now when you look through scripture, there are various words used for fear or reverence. And they can kind of have some different meanings. We can get some different ideas as we look at those, but the Greek word here is the word phobos, where we get the English word phobia. So we kind of understand that. You would probably hear that and think of kind of a paralyzing type of fear. But it's a term that's used in a few different ways in Scripture, and we're not going to take the time to read these passages. You can note them down if you want to read them later to, to get an idea of how this term is used. Uh, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Philippians 2, verse 12. And then a couple here in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, verse 2. And 1 Peter 3, verse 15. You can read those and kind of get an, un an understanding of what this term is speaking to in this context. But I'll give you kind of a summary idea. Ultimately, what Peter is writing of is not a paralyzing fear. It is a reverential fear that a believer has for the holy God of the universe. So it's not a, a paralyzing fear where you are cowering before a cruel and wicked dictator, but it's that reverential fear where you are kneeling before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that's what this fear 
is, that's what it means to fear God, but how then do we conduct ourselves? How do we conduct ourselves in fear of the Lord? I want to kind of run through a few scriptures that have this idea and think through about four ways that we can apply the idea of fearing God, conducting ourselves in fear of God. Firstly, there's Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, verse 11. We are commanded to worship the Lord with reverence. Worship the Lord with reverence. Consider Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron who came before the Lord and offered him a worship that was strange fire. And what did the Lord do? He struck them dead immediately because they offered strange fire to him. And the Lord concluded that section by saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. I will be treated as holy, and I will be honored. We are to worship the Lord in reverence. To worship the Lord in reverence is to worship him according to the truth. To worship him as he commands and as he instructs in his word. This does not mean we twist and pervert the word and use obscure references to justify some form of worship, but rather we form our doctrine of worship by the whole of Scripture, and we worship God with reverent hearts. Proverbs 28, verse 14, is instructive as to how we might conduct ourselves in fear before God. It says, How blessed is the man who fears always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You see the contrast, right? How blessed is the one who fears, but the one who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. How do you conduct yourself in fear of the Lord? You walk in reverent humility. You understand that God is God and you are not, that you are his creature. You are a sheep in his pasture. You live within the fencing bounds of his words as his sheep. And you do what he says. You walk humbly. You do not answer back to God because God is high and exalted. He is above us. He has all authority. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord is evidenced by this service, this grateful, overflowing with gratitude service of thanksgiving to the Lord, whereby you obey him. You give of your life as an act of worship in pure obedience. And you do so with a thankful heart. You are overwhelmingly grateful that you get the opportunity to obey God. You are commanded to obey, but you are able to obey. You can obey and you must obey. That is how you conduct yourselves in fear. Lastly, consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read from the ESV on this one because it brings a little clarity 
to what Paul writes. He said, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Again, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That is the most all-encompassing of, of these commands, that we cleanse ourselves, that we are purged of our every iniquity so that God's work of making us holy may be brought to completion. And we do that, the text says, in the fear of God. Strive to be pure and holy because you fear God. So what does it mean to conduct yourself in fear? You worship with reverence. You walk in humility. You serve the Lord with holy gratitude. And you strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Peter says that this command is for all those who through Christ are believers in God, that God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That's the, that's the great dual duty and purpose of the Christian life, that we conduct ourselves in fear. You are called to live a certain way when you are given new life in Christ. But all of that also comes up to this full idea that your faith and your hope are in God. Your faith and your hope are not in yourself. The Lord is an impartial judge, and he will judge you according to your works. And you are to conduct yourselves in fear because of that coming judgment. But you conduct yourself in fear, knowing that you will be judged according to your works, while you also remember that there is this precious and holy and spotless Lamb of God who poured out his blood on the cross so that you could come to him in faith and with repentance, asking him to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then the works on which you are judged is that work of faith, whereby the Lord looks at you and he sees not your sin but he sees the blood of Christ covering your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. So, dear friends, conduct yourselves in fear. Know that you were redeemed from your former way of life, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood. The precious blood of Christ, the Lamb who was unblemished, who was put to death on the cross, but then raised by the glorious work of the Father, resurrected from the dead, ascended to glory, who now sits at the right hand of God, making intercession on your behalf. If we sin, 1 John 2 says, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Conduct yourselves in fear. Put your faith and your hope in Christ. Strive to be holy just as he is holy. But dear friend, know that if you sin, you have that advocate. 
On Christ the solid rock you will stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It is his righteousness given to you that makes you acceptable before the holy presence of the just and impartial judge. So go to Christ in faith. Strive to be holy. and Put your faith and hope in Christ alone. Let's close in prayer.